Welcome back to Ask the Compound, where you ask the questions, we provide the answers, we provide the experts too. Uh, remember our email here, askthecompoundshow at gmail.com. Today's show is sponsored by Futureproof. Only the best finance conference I've ever been to in my life. Duncan, you too, I'm sure. It was great. How come we don't have a picture of us up there? We were there, we had fun. The John? first 500 advisors to register get a chance to win a Futureproof branded Bonfire 2.0 solo stove. I gave my parents one of these things for Christmas one year. I don't think they used it for the first two years when they finally did. It's like magic because they have some sort of air system in there where you don't get any smoke. I don't get it, but it works. I've heard that, yeah. So you register for Future Proof before January 31st, getting close. Uh, follow them on LinkedIn. They're going to choose one person out of the 500 that wins this solo stove. Uh, we're already more than 75% full. 500 plus wealth management CEOs, CTOs, CIOs, that sort of thing. $1.3 trillion of total firm AUM represented. I don't know. Stocks are at all-time highs. I bet that's $1.4 trillion now. 80% of attendees are C-suite or equivalent. Jeez, pretty hoity-toity. All right. Sounds fancy. And I heard it's even going to be bigger this year, right? I mean, how much yes. bigger could it could even big be? It was already massive. Bam. It's so much fun. All right. Go to the link in the in YouTube here on the show notes. Uh, very special guest host on today's show. This is going to be fun. She is a CFP. She used to run her own wealth management firm. She is the newest member of the Compound Media team. She is my, don't tell anyone else that's been on the show, she was my favorite guest on the Compound and Friends. Wow. It's here on CBS. She was there this morning. Duncan saw her. Uh, and we both have an affinity for answering questions about personal finance and retirement investing for normal people, like the people that listen to this show. So let's bring her in. Jill Schlesinger. Jill. Hey, Jill. Hey. Hey, hey, hey. I'm so psyched. This is so awesome. I don't have to do anything. I get to sit back, look into a camera, no prep, no nothing. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Thank you. We're and thanks for wearing your compound you, gear. Right? Yeah. It looks nice. Because you, you do. You answer these questions too. And and I think the great part about these kind of questions is that they're just never ending. You, you get, I'm sure you get many of the same questions rephrased or from different people. And I think it's really good to hit on a lot of these things because normal people have tons of questions about their finances. I think not even normal people, everybody, every yes, single person. And, you know, I always laugh about this because someone, uh, this complete ass said this to me. He's like one of my brother-in-law's friends from Wall Street. And he was like, oh, your podcast is just personal finance, like, like down his nose at it. I said, yeah, all your friends who are scared to ask a real question, call me and use a fake name. So, yeah, I do that. <laughs> That's everyone's personal finance. Yes, everyone needs personal. to pay attention to this stuff. It's right? True. Come on. Anyway, yeah. so great. And uh, love talking to a man from Grand Rapids. Shout right. out Grand Rapids. Thank you. I feel a little left out because our our, our logo is the, the subway, which I take when I go to New York. You know, I feel like I'm 3% New Yorker. Okay. Well, we could immerse you in it. Don't worry. All right. Duncan, let's get into a question. Okay. First up today, we got a question from Alex. How does one go about untangling a web of less than optimal financial decisions <laughs> made by parents? For instance, my parents have very little home equity due to HELOCs, uh, whole life insurance policies, concent concentrated stock portfolios in an old employer stock, and credit card debt. My parents are early in retirement, but frankly live off of Social Security. They have lots of assets, but also lots of debt. Their assets don't seem accessible to them. How can they unlock some of their assets to increase their freedom in retirement? Okay, so family and money is always a tricky topic, right? And my my initial thing would be here, but we'll have them talk to a professional. But there's also this weird psychological thing going on here because it's a role reversal. And I'm feeling this now. I'm I'm in my early 40s. I have kids. 
I feel myself slowly transitioning to like the responsible one, sometimes with my own parents, because they're getting up there in age. So how do you think about this role reversal first, before we even get into any of the financial stuff of the kid sort of taking care of the parents now? Yeah, this is a really common issue. And part of it has to do with generationally, if your family is not the kind of family that talked about money in an open and honest way, you can often discover these things when it's a bit too late. Now, it doesn't sound like it's too late. It really doesn't. I guess the first question would be, how do your parents feel about you getting involved in the process? I think that's step one, right? Because Ben, as I'm sure you've seen with a zillion different clients, there are some people who are like very willing. They want their kids involved. There are other people who are so private. So yes, I think never that's- Never talk about anything money related. Yeah. And so I think number one is, do they want you involved? Let's say they do want you involved. That's when I would say that it might be very helpful to get- a financial planner who's a fiduciary to sit down and you be part of the meeting. You say, I'm just coming to be the note taker. Keep your mouth shut because you need your parents to hear this from this unbiased third party. Because maybe if they hear it from you, they're going to be like, he isn't, I don't know. Maybe he doesn't know. In terms of illiquid assets, you know, if they've got old whole life insurance policies that maybe have built up some cash value, maybe it's time to blow out of them or borrow against them. Maybe it's time to clean up some of that credit card debt. And maybe it's time to really put together a whole financial plan rather than a whole life policy. Ben, what do you think about that? Do you think that like people are willing to do that at, at an older age or not? I do like the idea of sitting down with a financial advisor and the, 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 child just saying, I, you know, cause they could give them the same exact advice and the parents wouldn't take it. Or if one part of the financial plan went wrong, they would blame them. So yes. I, that's why I think having that impartial third party is very important to talk to. And even if they don't go with a financial planner, just sitting through and getting everything in one place and, and having it all laid out, I think could be very helpful. So I think that makes sense to me. And then it just giving some options of, yeah, you can borrow against this. You can, uh, do a, uh, you know, reverse mortgage on your home, whatever it is to try to unlock some of that liquidity. That's like the detail stuff. That's the easy stuff. Mm -hmm. Probably it's the, yeah, actually having the conversation and figuring out like, okay, get all this stuff together, show that you've made some mistakes then try to fix it from there. That's the hard part. And, and if I may just say one other thing is if, if the financial picture looks murky, I would ask the question, gee, I wonder if his parents or her parents have done any estate planning. Because I think that when you nudge your parents, like, hey, do you have a will? Do you have a healthcare proxy? Do you have a power of attorney? That parents like, oh, yeah. And if you find out the answer is no, that process will also help you build out, like, what does that balance sheet of my parents look like? Because that's what happens right. in estate planning. Every single asset becomes accounted for. And if they don't have an estate plan, my gosh, that's like actually a higher priority than even the financial plan. Yes. And if they're in retirement and they haven't really thought through all this stuff, you know, don't make them feel bad about themselves. Try to make it about more like, what about the next generation? And what happens if something happens to one of you? And I think that's the stuff where you need to have, that's why you need the financial plan in case something does happen as you get up in age. Yeah. Be nice. Keep in mind, they didn't have John money or ask the compound when they were young. You know? They weren't watching <laughs> True. this. And also, there's no reason to point a finger. They are where they are. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. well, why would you buy such a thing? You're so stupid. Like, yeah, no one right. wants to hear that, right? Yeah, and, that's, and by that's the not way, helpful. That's not helpful. So, like, they are where they are. Let's take a step forward. And uh, I'm excited to hear whether, like, how it goes to say, like, maybe can- It would be go good to hear a follow-up on yeah, this one. I, for sure. I agree. All right, next question. 
Okay, up next we have an anonymous question. I was thinking of retiring with 100% invested in stocks like an S&P 500 index fund with plans to live entirely on dividend income plus Social Security. The stock portfolio would fluctuate wildly, but how much would the dividend amount fluctuate? Does this sound like a reasonable strategy? Okay, I came bearing charts here. So John, People love this topic, by the way. This oh, is like yeah? a super yes. highly searched okay. topic. Yeah. Great. Yeah, and we're, we're getting a lot more retirement questions from people who want to understand that withdrawal strategy. For a lot mm -hmm. of people, I think the, the build-up strategy, while not easy for everyone, is easier, the saving, than it is the, the deaccumulation phase. So John, throw up my first chart here. So this is the historical drawdowns of dividends on the S&P 500 going back to like the late 1920s. I just wanted to see how, how bad could it get you know, because this person knows they fluctuate. And so th actually, this is going back to 1950. So the the worst drawdown was in the great financial crisis where you have like 25%. Dividends went down 25%. It's interesting, though. You, you didn't have any other times where they went down 10%. It was mm. almost there in the 50s. So dividends fluctuate way less wildly than the market itself, right? Price fluctuates more. So I think there's been 11 bear markets in the S&P 500 since 1950, there's been like nearly 40 double-digit corrections, and you only have one really nasty drawdown in dividends. John, throw the next one up real quick. This just shows the rolling growth of dividends. And you can see most of the time it's positive. So this is 12-month rolling growth of the dividends on the S&P 500. 88% of the time on a year-over-year -year basis, dividends are positive. So you have that going for you, which is most of the time dividends go up. And I think the growth rate historically has been 2% over the rate of inflation, right? So even though the dividend yield right now on the S&P is 1.5% or so, you get that inflation kicker, which is nice. That's like the, the positive here. The negative is, what if you do have a financial crisis like that? Are you willing to see your income chopped by 25% in the worst case scenario? So I think that's where you have to figure out how flexible you're willing to be. And the other piece of this is, I think one of the reasons, Duncan, you said this is a popular topic, there are certain retirees who say, I only want to live on the income. I never want to touch the principal, right? Because you can obviously create your own dividends by just selling shares. The problem is, if you're making up for lost dividends and you're selling stocks when they're down, that's mm -hmm. a double whammy. So that, that's, that's my biggest problem with this strategy, is that when the dividends fluctuate to the downside, can you cut your spending or do you have another source? That's why I, I like the idea of having more liquidity here as well as the Social Security and the dividend income. Yeah. So I also think that uh, oftentimes when we talk about the mathematical likelihood of something occurring, it's great. I'm a math head. I love that. But let's talk about real life. Let's talk about the financial crisis. Let's talk about how you may not think that you are sensitive to volatility, but maybe you will be when you're 65. Maybe you will be when you're 75 because people change over time. And the real interesting thing about retirement is not so much at like, okay, I can live off dividends when everything is fine. That's great. But at the same time, when you are not working, right, no income coming in and you're drawing down the value of your, let's just pretend the value of your portfolio, you have a two and a half million dollar portfolio. You've run the numbers. You can live off the dividends on average over, and then you have this line in the sand moment where you're like, oh my God, my two and a half million just became 175. And that is freaking me out. Get me out. And then I think that that's, that's where it's very helpful when you work with somebody who is a financial advisor rather than doing it on your own. Because as one guy once said to me, I had a client who had like gobs and gobs of money. And I said, you know how to do this. This person was like, a lawyer, had had very good experience. He said, you're my insurance policy against myself. 
And I think that what happens in retirement is you may misjudge how you might feel when markets turn against you. And the only source of income is that pot of money. Now, listen, anonymous, maybe you have $10 million and it won't matter, really. But if you're telling me you need that amount of money, you know, you've run your numbers, you've run your expenses, and you've got a million dollar portfolio, and you've got to live off of $80,000 a year, I think you're you're actually asking for a problem in the future. Yeah. And those the back test that I show here, that's easy. We can see, oh, the dividends came back. It was easy. But living through that, especially Ugh. at a time like a financial crisis where everyone's thinking, like, is this ever going to come back? Uh, I, I'm going to capitulate and sell out now. Then, then what do you do? Because then you've just shot a hole in your plan. So that I, yeah. So any some sort of, especially when you're retired, T bills or CDs or money market or some sort of buffer there that can get you through. So put I don't know two, three, four years worth in something liquid like that, so you don't have to freak out and potentially sell your stocks when they when they do crash. Because it's going to happen at some point. Yeah, and uh, and to some extent, it's like why be 100% stocks? Why do you have to put yourself through that? Like your portfolio is going to do great if you're 80, 20, your porf- you know, right. you're going to be fine. So there's no reason to make yourself nuts. And by the way, what are you maximizing here? Right? Like, yes, I'm mathematically maximizing, but like you still have to live through it as Ben Especially said. Especially if so. you're only, if you want to live on the income, then have other income producing assets that aren't as volatile then. Right. That probably pay a better yield. So right. what's the, yeah, if you're going to just be live on the income, then-, then Like have a side hustle. Bet. That's what you mean, right? Yeah, I mean, sure. listen, by the way, one of the things that's interesting, I know you guys have many younger folks, but I get some older people, especially on my radio show. And what I've been noticing is people need an off-ramp, okay? It's like, I'm yes. 55 years old, I'm fried to a crisp, but I need to make some money for 10 years. Like, I really do. So as you're thinking about retirement, one really helpful thing to do is just like, what could I do for 10 years or five years that could make money and could keep me engaged? You know, so much of this is emotional. If you're 100% engaged over just your portfolio, I think you're going to be miserable in retirement. I agree. My my father retired early, 61 years old. And within the first year of retirement, he got so bored, he went and worked at a winery, uh, cleaning up the empty bottles and just something to keep. And they gave him 50% off on wine. And that was, so he was, he was happy, but, uh, yeah, he immediately realized like I need something to do. So that that's, yeah, that's another important part of it too. Absolutely. All right. Next question, Duncan. All right. Up next, we have a question from Mitch. You say the return since 2000 has the chance to end up as the worst multi-decade return in history. But if you started investing in 2000, wouldn't that have been an absolute boon to your account? You always say, be happy when stock prices fall so you can buy at lower prices. Stocks fell a lot from 2000 to 2010. So wouldn't that be a positive for long-term returns? Okay, good. They're throwing my own facts in my face here. Oh, so yeah. Jill, <laughs> so this, so I, I talked about this a few weeks ago. I wrote a blog post saying if you the, the worst time in history to be a long-term investor might have been 2000, the height of the dot-com bubble. You've had highest valuations we've ever seen. And I said my favorite stat is always the worst 30-year return of the past 100 years in the U.S. stock market is 8% a year. That's oh. the worst 30-year the worst return. So- so I, I looking at it and I said, well, starting in 2000, you've got about 7% a year. So if even if we kind of track historical numbers, it's going to be hard to beat that 8%. And I said, that could be the worst time in history. And this person said, okay, but let's reverse it. You're not just an investor at that time. What if you're a saver? Mm. And so, and John threw up my first chart here. I, Nick Majuli has this cool dollar cost average calculator. So I, I put it in starting in January 2000, you put $500 a month in and you did pretty well on that. The, the return ends up being 10%, which is you know, f- almost 50% better than the 7% return you would have gotten just keeping your money static. So mm. as a saver, you do much better. So 
my idea here, Jill, is how do you get people behind the psychology of, you know, everyone thinks markets go up, my portfolio goes up, that's good, or markets go down, my portfolio goes down, that's bad. But if you're a net saver, you have to rethink the risk idea. And risk means different things to different people because if you're a saver, that means down markets are good for you. So how do you get young people to think that way? I mean, because it, it's it, a different, it's a different it, line of thinking. It's totally a different way of thinking. So it's like the inverse of this question around retirement. Right. And the funny thing is, it's like, I get nervous. Like you can have bad luck. Okay. Let's be clear. Like if you're the person who graduates college and we're in a deep recession, your earnings will be lower than your previous, than the previous generation cohort for like 10 years. It's going to be bad. It's bad. It's bad luck. Same thing can happen with retirement. But the flip side is if you get your money to work, if you are forced to put money away, a 401k, a Roth IRA, some money every single month into a retirement account, it's essentially like that's your hedge. You know how we look, I'm an old options trader. So I always have been thinking of the world. It's like, what's the worst thing that can happen? And my hedge against downside is to keep investing, is to put money to work. You know what's an amazing hedge? Saving more money. I bet, Ben, if we did an analysis of all of your clients, and I looked at all my old clients from 100 years ago, the ones who tended to be the most successful over the long term saved a lot of money. That's it. And they saved, and I don't mean like they made a million dollars, but that they saved a larger share of their income than maybe other people who had the exact same income. So when you're thinking like, should I go on this unbelievable trip to the Rockies and go mountain climbing? Should I do a slightly smaller version of that and be able to save like an extra $3,000 this year? You might say to yourself, $3,000, that's my hedge against something crappy happening this year. It's your hedge. You can be your own hedge. Saving is the most, and, and investing that money, not just having it sit in a bank, but that investing, that's going to do so much for you as you become a more seasoned investor and over time, for sure. Right. And so, John, throw the next chart up. The, the luck thing you mentioned. So I just looked at, let's say you put $10,000 a year into the S&P 500 and let it ride for 20 years. The best times to be an investor were actually like the 30s and the 70s, two really crappy decades for investors, but two really good decades for savers. And I think as we, as we get more data, the 2000s are going to look like that as well, where the time you put in can be very helpful. The other thing on your your talk about good luck, bad luck, Johnny can do chart off, is the retiree versus the young person thing. So the, the more you say, I always like to say the more you save as a young person and the higher savings rate, the less you have to replace in retirement. Mm -hmm. That's kind of another another hedge. It also gives you a margin of safety if you need to to spend that money. But the that's why you want that liquidity piece as a retired person, because if you have this nasty bear market or huge crash right when you retire, through no fault of your own, because it's just bad timing or bad luck, then you want that offset to be able to see you through those periods. I've never gotten so much pushback from clients uh, way back when, and even on the air, when I say the following, your emergency reserve fund should have, as a worker be, six to 12 months of your living expenses in a safe place. And if you're retired, it should be one to two years of your living expenses in a safe place. People hate that. They're like, that's so stupid. Why would you be in cash? I used to say that when we were getting paid 0% interest because that is your insurance policy. Yes. You buy car insurance all the time. You say, oh, do you say, oh, I hope I get into a car accident so I can use my car insurance. No, you say, oh, thank God I had car insurance in case something bad happens. And you know what? That's your insurance policy. You can self-insure to some extent. But again, if you are only willing to forego certain things today and 
it does take discipline, but on the other hand, it's so much easier to find that discipline when you can automate it. Imagine how yes. hard it was when you had to have the money go into a bank account, you had to write a check to Fidelity, and then the money went into this. I mean, it was impossible for people. So it's way easier now. Yes, yes. Automate it. Don't look at it. You're going to be fine. Yep. All right. Next question, Duncan. All right. Up next, we have a question from Kevin. I keep hearing about contributing to a Roth IRA, doing a backdoor Roth, yada, yada. <laughs> If I'm someone making over $200,000, not to brag, and maxing out my 401k with catch-up contributions, what can I really do with a Roth? Aren't there income limitations? I'm getting closer to retirement. Does that mean it's not worth it? All the talking heads throw out Roths, but never seem to mention the limitations or caveats. Uh, what are your thoughts? All right. I almost said caveat. I love well, to hear caveat, that. Right? I mean, well, you can say caveat. You sound very, yeah. uh, very public television. We talked Seinfeld before we got on here, and this person yada yada through Roth IRAs, which is pretty good. Do you think it matters how close you are to retirement and also your income? And the, the way I'm looking at this is I like to keep things as simple as possible. Do you think it's worth the pain of going through that for someone, uh, especially when they're close to retirement and they have a high income? What say you on this? Because there, there are obviously a lot, a lot of people who say, listen, the Roth is one of the best deals you can get because it just that also simplifies your life. Well, okay, a few things. I am all, I love a Roth. I really do. A couple things to just keep in mind. You're in the $200,000 income earner. That's great. Yeah, you can't put, you can't have a contribution to a Roth IRA. You'll start to income above that. But so many places have Roth retirement options, and that's one possibility. Number two, when you have a Roth, you're locking in your tax liability over decades. I don't know what's going to happen in two years. We have two years until income tax brackets are supposed to sunset to bef to where they were in 2017, which is higher where they are now. So some people would rather say, I don't care if I'm in a higher tax bracket now or if I'm close to retirement. I'd rather put new money into Roth because I know that I've risked that, that tax brackets are going to rise. And here's the thing that's really tricky. When you are putting money that's all traditional, you will be forced to take that money out in the future through required minimum distributions. Remember, Uncle Sam hasn't been paid yet. So when you're 72, 3, 4, 5, it'll be 75 if you're somebody who's younger now, the government's going to say, you've got to take a certain percentage of that money out every single year from your traditional retirement account. And that amount of money may be much bigger than you imagine. And that adds to your taxable income. That can screw with how much you pay for Medicare. That can pop you into new tax brackets and you've got no control over it. So a few things to keep in mind. We, I need to know so many more details about you. I'd love to walk you through this. Maybe it isn't the best time for you to put money into a Roth, but maybe if you're going to retire, maybe there should be a strategy for starting to pull money out of your pre-tax retirement accounts while your income is as low as possible. So maybe when you're 60 to 65, you start dribbling money out. You pay the tax that's due. You know what that tax is. And maybe when you can, maybe you're going to collect social security at age 70. So you keep doing it. But this is all part of an overall strategy. And that withdrawal strategy has a lot of risk because we have no idea where tax rates are going to go three decades into the future. And that's okay. why you want to be diverse. So that's why you want to have some Roth assets. So you can be diversified. So you have some Roth assets. You can play with the Social Security, but when you take it, and you also have the traditional assets. I agree that the Roth 401k is the easiest option because that also gives you a bigger limit to contribute. So if you have one of those for your employer, I would be using the catch-up contributions as you're getting close. So we we switched to a Roth IRA a couple of years ago. Our tax guy, Bill Sweet, said, 
then do this. It's it's kind of a no brainer. Wait, so have those so other the Roth has to played off of. This is probably a dumb question, but the Roth Roth four hundred one k does not have income limit. Nope, no limit. Okay, okay, no limit at all. And, and for by the way, IRA for a Roth IRA, it's one hundred and sixty one thousand. I think I noted. Yeah, is that right? I don't, know. I don't have something my tax like table with me, okay. but it's something like that. Yeah. And and you know the thing is. At the beginning, no, very few companies were offering it. Now it's almost like pretty yeah. standard. You know, you can go in and bug your boss and be like, "Hey, we need a Roth option," because they want it too. Yes. Okay. All right. We have three more little hard, faster hitting lightning round questions. Let's do it, Duncan. Okay. So up next, we have a question from Sam. It seems like there are two simple methods for rebalancing your portfolio into your chosen allocation either selling more appreciated assets and buying less appreciated ones at some regular regular frequency or adding new funds to your existing assets to bring them into alignment. Is there a clear benefit to either of these methods? I guess it depends what your kind of retirement accounts you're using or brokerage accounts, if you're using taxable or non-taxable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's harder to automate if you're trying to use new contributions, but I think there's fewer tax consequences as well. That's the trade-off. Yeah. I and and that's that's 100% spot on. And by the way, I think that this idea of like rebalancing got a little bit of um uh, got a pop in uh, the headlines. It was I think it was the Wall Street Journal which was like, "Oh, we ran a, a thing and you should be rebalancing more." We can't get people to rebalance once a year. So, thanks Wall Street Journal. Like, you know, you can tell us monthly, but it's not happening. So, um whatever way makes sense. And of course, rebalancing in a non in a non-retirement account can really hook you on taxes. So just be careful. Yeah. So that's where you want, probably want to use the contributions and and yep. let your, yeah, have some bands around it or something. But yeah, that's both ways is probably easier. All right. Next one, Duncan. All right. Up next, this is from Nick. Very simple question for you guys. Is VT, the Vanguard Total World Stock Index ETF, the perfect equity investment? <laughs> uh, it is global and market cap weighted. So do you really need any other equity investments besides this? I only have two questions for this. Could you do better than the world stock market index fund? Yes. Could you do worse? Definitely. That's kind of where I fall on this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I am all into like simplicity. We got a call yesterday when we were doing Jill on Money Powered by the Compound where somebody was like having 18 different um, exchange traded funds. Like, oh my God, that's way too much and you don't have to go there. But, you know, honestly, um, it's hard to do much. It, you're not going to do too much damage to yourself. So uh, it, it, the more choice you have, sometimes it's not good. So uh, it may not be perfect, but if my alternative is uh, you're going to start picking stocks and trying to figure out the top and bottom of markets, then yeah, I'm going there. Exactly. It's better than most anything else you can do. Right. Yeah, I was kind of I was getting a little nervous yesterday when you and Mark were going on about people having too many you know stocks and things because I've got a lot. No, you're doing it for fun. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's not not my not my retirement. Yeah, but it account. hasn't been very much fun for him lately. <laughs> it's, it's true. It's a uh, learning yeah, experience. It's a learning yeah, experience. There you go. Okay, Paying that so, tuition to the market gods. Right. Last but not least, we have a question from Michael. My wife and I are early on in our careers and starting to think about the next stages of life for our family. How does uh, the recommended percentage of income spent on a house change for individuals early in their career, particularly those starting families? when considering a long-term forever home as opposed to a starter home. For instance, if the general advice is to spend 35% of after-tax income on housing, what could this percentage increase to for a forever home? I didn't know there was a difference here, so I'm curious to hear what you guys have to say. Well, this, I don't know, that is kind of a rule of thumb. You spend 30 to 35% on housing. Obviously, the two biggest expenses for most people are housing and transportation. Those are the big fixed expenses. 
I think when you have kids, you can add in childcare costs to that, mm. although that hopefully is only going to be there for a few years. I think a lot of it just depends on like where you live and how flexible your lifestyle is and your career potential. Because the great thing about a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is you can grow into that payment over time, hopefully, or make right. it easier to stomach. Um, but how much do you want to push to get into this this great house while you have childcare costs potentially coming in? That's a that's a tough question. Yeah, and what it does to be in that house and what other types of investing, retirement, college funding, what's going to take a hit because more of that money is going into your home. You know, I found it really interesting. Um, I'm sure you saw this um, recently in the Times. They did a big piece about how maybe buying a house is a really bad bet right now. And it was interesting in that, you know, there are so many places where it's so, so, so expensive. Like you're going to spend 60% of your take home, right. you know, they're just not going to do it. But when you're on the bubble, I, what I think there's a few things to remember. One is, you know, where is that flexibility going to come from? Do I want to have more flexibility and have access to my money, put money in 529, put money in retirement, or do I really want to be locked down and be in a house that I love and I feel good about it? And yes, maybe I'm a first year surgeon and then 10 years from now, I know my income's going to go up. I think that, Ben, that's a fantastic point. Like, what does your career look like? Like, I'm in media. People are all like, oh crap, I'm never going to make, I like peaked on my income five years ago. Like, it's all going down. So what's interesting is, you have to be really honest with yourselves and be willing to sit out a little bit and be patient because in many places, renting is a much better alternative, especially right now. Yeah. And the, but the fact that this person has already thought through the percentage of their income that's going to housing tells me that they're, they've thought about this. So they're not just getting into it willy nilly. So I think that's, yeah. that's a good first step that they're actually figuring out how much it's going to impact their budget. Yeah. In I, this and market, in this market, are there really even starter homes anymore? Or has it kind of just collapsed what we would have called a starter home into just every other home? You know what it is? I think it's like you go to other places, right? So, yeah. you know, uh, I, if I'm going to look at the suburbs, maybe I go to the exurbs. And now that things have shifted a little bit, or if I'm looking in a city and I say, you know what? I can rent and I can be in the city and rent longer because there's a bigger amount of housing stocked for rental. But if you live in a place where there just isn't a lot of inventory, you're kind of screwed. So yeah. it may be that buying a home will be your best bet. Get your mortgage and know that you'll be able to refinance. You know, I don't know. Ben, what was your mortgage rate when you first bought your home? My, I did. We bought our first one in 2007. So it was six and a quarter. And, Not and bad, then, right? That's like now-ish. Yeah. And then got to three in the pandemic, which was obviously good timing. But yeah. And the, the point back then, we didn't worry about rates as much because prices were so much lower. But yeah, I, th I think when you buy that first one, you, you do stretch a little bit and then you and then you try to grow into it. I think that's the idea for most people. You just want to make sure you're not stretching a lot, especially with a kid on the way. Right. Especially when you feel like, oh, there are a lot of other things that I, ha I have to be looking at ahead of me. So but I, I love the idea that somebody's like really running the numbers, which is great, which is like half the battle. Run the numbers. And don't just buy a house because some donkey lender will give you the money to do it. It has yes. to work in your yes. budget. We'll it give you all the way up to this family. point. That's, that is the thing. People say, we'll give you from this amount to this amount. And people always go to the highest amount and say, okay, there's our budget. Yeah, right? no. Don't do yes. that. My, don't the first that. house that my wife and I bought, we met with a realtor and she, she said, I want to walk through the numbers with you. And I'm a spreadsheet guy. She said you have to pay property taxes and you have to pay insurance. And my wife started laughing and she said, do you think he hasn't thought of this already? So I was on oh, yeah. it. Well, pr well, principal interest, homeowners, property taxes. What about maintenance? No one HOAs, talks about that. Yeah, upkeep. Yeah. What about that upkeep? How much do you spend on your house every year just to keep it's it up lot. over time? It's a crap load. And yes. you know, I don't do anything. So I don't know how to, I'm the only lesbian who doesn't know how to, who is not handy. 
So it's a good thing I live in a co-op. I'm like, hello, super, can you come get me? And uh, I'm getting kicked out of the lesbian union for outing myself that way. But it is true. I can't do anything. So it costs a lot to maintain an or, uh, a residence if you really are not handy at all. You and I are both outsourcers, that's for sure. Indeed. I can't do anything either. I, I changed a light bulb last week. I was pretty proud of myself. Really? How'd it go? It was good? They're very I mean, fragile, those light bulbs. They're- <laughs> See, I'm, I'm the opposite. I'll just, I'll be like diving down some deep rabbit holes to figure out how to do anything around the around the home. But, mm, uh, but don't do electrical, right? You don't do electrical work. Maybe you I do. do. I do. <laughs> all right, Duncan. All right, that's all the questions we have for today. I want to thank Jill for helping us out here. Remember, new Jill on Money right here at the compound on Saturday. Yes. Correct? Yeah, yes. every Saturday. Yes, every single Saturday. Thank you there guys we- for having me. I so appreciate it. We appreciate everyone in the chat. Really loved having you. New Compound and Friends back here tomorrow. Email us your questions. Show at gmail.com. Leave a comment on YouTube. Leave a review. Subscribe to the Compound channel to see all the new episodes of everything. And we will see you next time. See you, everyone. Thanks for listening to Ask the Compound. All opinions expressed by Ben Carlson, Duncan Hill, and any of their guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. 